Hello and welcome back to the TTL, to Tani Talks Life, brought to you by the Tani Talks Podcast. This is the sheer where we talk a topic per session with some practical lessons. Tonight's topic is, are we comfortable, really? All of my podcasts of the TTP, the partial one, TTPA, Perkeavis, TTD, the DAF, TTOT, the Occupational Therapy one, and this live show are on different podcast forums, including iTunes podcasts, Google podcasts, and most recently, Yidpod, the Jewish podcast app service. Download it today on the App Store. Shout out to Jake W. and Ellie N. of Sheer Enjoyment, as well as Chaim C. of Yidpod, Yidflix, and Jewish Content Network and Chesed Fund for their amazing hard work. This year tonight is Le'iloi Nishmas, our esteemed Mora de Astra, Alava Shalom, Rav Yehuda ben Dov Ber Zetzal, as well as from my wife's grandfather, Yaakov ben Yehuda Leib, and my wife's great uncle, Shimon Leib ben Yehuda. This year should also be for the Rafua and Yeshua of anyone who needs and anyone who wants. I am reachable at RebT at SheerEnjoyment.com, as well as MaximumTEE at Yahoo.com, especially for donation chips or sponsorships or the like. Please feel free to reach out. Sometimes in life, we are too comfortable, too complacent, and too cushy to get any real work or progress done. We feel too settled where we are figuratively, literally, spiritually, and geographically. It reminds me of the metaphor or example of being sunk into a really comfortable couch. My wife tells me often there was a a show growing up called The Great Big Comfy Couch, or the big comfy couch, I forget the exact name, I myself didn't watch it, but it had a huge, huge green couch, and all these things would get stuck in it, these toys, these items, these thousands of things were stuck and fell into that couch, which is kind of like our couch, but a lot of different things got 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 stuck in and got lost in there. In fact, our couch in our house, which is a large sectional with matching fainting couch piece, courtesy of my aunt, thank you, has such a feeling to it, especially in the corner piece, which is wedged down and sank over time because we sit in it so much and the kids jump on it so much. It's actually quite difficult to get up from the big comfy couch in our living room in our house And it takes real effort. I'm sure many of you have a similar type of couch. It's just too difficult to get up and to get off. In life, like the couch, we feel too settled, too set in, too hard to get up and make change. To change the status quo, to make a difference in our days and in our lives. We get too complacent thinking that our five minutes of learning every day are enough, our $10 tzedakah are enough, or that we donate clothing once a year, it's good enough, or that we made food at one time for one family a half a year ago, I was Yotzeh Machiev, I did my time for that mitzvah, it's just good enough, we're Yotzeh, we did it, we're done with that. We think it's too hard or difficult to even think about entertaining the idea of one day living in Israel and moving there. How can I live there? I'd have to give up my house and live in an apartment. No more grass. No more back or front yard. How can I be without my driveway? In fact, Robert Orlovsky has a whole series on this. He has an amazing podcast. I try to listen to Blinander often. The Rabbi Orlovsky Show on Yidpod and on different podcast forums of Torah anytime. And he goes through this these exact questions. He himself lived in Farakway in a nice semi-attached house. They had a front yard and a backyard. They moved to Harnof in this very small three-bedroom apartment, Kanina Harav. They have like 11 kids, eight girls, three boys. 
And he tells people when they come and they say, but the weather, it's too hot, it's too small, I can't deal with it. How can I give up this? How can I give up that? Who can afford anything? How can I be without my driver, without my stuff, without my materialism? I'm just too comfortable. Who can afford a house there, even a semi-attached one? How can I live in an apartment there and lose all of this? I can't live in the sweltering heat, making 20K a year. They say, I can't deal with this heat. I can't deal with this dust. Why is there so much dust? They tell the rabbi a lot. And he says, you know, we've been here a little while, but, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a country that has a lot of areas. The cleaning lady only comes once a week, can't get to all the areas. <laughs> he says it much funnier than I could ever say it. He's hilarious. But talking about the idea how getting up and moving around from the idea of not being in the comfort. Will my kids have to go to the army? Will they have a good school? What about groceries and shopping? What about X or Y or Z? Mind you, and he points this out also, millions of people live there, mostly in apartments, and they make do and are very happy there with their situation. We get caught up oftentimes in the details and think about how we can't do more in life. But that's really blatantly untrue. We need to do more, and we can do more. And that's why the question to really ask ourselves tonight is this. Are we comfortable, really? Are we comfortable, really? Are we actually comfortable, properly comfortable with our stance in life, with what we are doing now, with where we are living now? Is there more that we can do? Is there someone somewhere better we can live? Like in our own home, whatever type or style it may be, courtesy of where you're supposed to be, especially in the land of Israel one day? I ask myself this question all the time. And although it is a very personal decision per family, and I believe for my own family, my wife and kids, we are not there yet personally, how many of us out there are there personally, are ready, but won't admit to it? Or do it. I actually just heard of a friend in the community moving to Israel. I give him major credit, Mazel Tov to them. I saw him today. I said, Mazel Tov! I didn't even know he was so gung ho about it. We saw on Facebook they're selling their house, they're making Aliyah. He's leaving behind a five bedroom house, a nice, comfortable house, a nice, comfortable life, a nice, comfortable school. He sends his kids to school, the same school that we send our kids to. Now our oldest goes there, God willing, the other ones. Nice, comfortable life, but getting up to move who knows where to do no, who knows what, probably have an apartment like a tenth of the size of their house, but God willing, they are doing it. So the question again I ask, are we comfortable really? And what does comfortable really mean? What does comfortable look like? Jews for thousands of years have been quote-unquote comfortable in different lands, in different living quarters, but was that real comfort of our own land and real comfort of our own true mission in life? The word comfortable really gets thrown around a lot. You know, the, the Jews were 40 years in the desert. Were they living a comfortable life? Were they living a comfortable existence? Was their essence, their everyday one of comfort? They literally had tents. They had to shift the position of the tents to be facing different directions so that they wouldn't peer in each other's windows, see what's going on. What's she cooking for dinner? What's he cooking for dinner? What's he doing? Hey, what are the Epsteins doing? Hey, what are the uncles doing? They had to literally etch out their existence in the sand for 40 years. And then they went into Israel. They had to fight for seven years. They had to divide the land for seven years. They had to go into this area that they were very uncomfortable with, unfamiliar with, and then sort of settle down. So we think about comfort 
But life is not always about comfort. Sometimes you have to go outside of your comfort zone. Sometimes you have to see, you have to plan, you have to figure out how to live. And what do we really need to live with? So much of what we try to attain, what we try to obtain throughout life is for comfort, quote unquote. But how much do we really need? We're going to talk about a story later, thinking about what's really the bare necessities, what's really the essence of what you need. Yes, bedrooms are needed. Yes, and a couch, I understand, is needed. A dining room table, a kitchen is needed. But what else? You need 16 bedrooms. You need 17 acres. You need 2,500 square feet. Is that really what comfort is? Or we're going excessively above and beyond? We have to think about what is our real mission in life. Nothing comes with us after 120 years. Nothing materialistic. Only spiritual things come with us. The name we have for ourselves. The mitzvahs we do for others, the Torah learning we do, the chesed we do, that's what comes with us, nothing materialistic. Whether you have 17 cars, a beautiful car, a a broken down jalopy, a huge house, a small house, that doesn't come with you. We need to think about what really comfort is and what we really need to do in life. We also tend to gravitate to the mitzvahs and chesed that are familiar, comfortable, or usual to us. How many mitzvahs do we skip over because it is not in our regular comfort arena? Do we want to miss out on all the opportunities and mitzvahs out there that are a little out of our range, a little out of our comfort? Wayne Gretzky, Lahavdal, once famously said, You miss 100% of the shots you never take. With the full quote being, You miss 100% of the shots you don't take, even though there's only a 1% to 5% probability of scoring. Don't miss out on the shots of life. Don't miss out on the mitzvahs in our lives, even if we may not score or win in that mitzvah department. We get too comfortable, but the comfort we feel is really a false allure. Are we actually comfortable living in Gullis among non-Jews? Are we actually comfortable staying in a dead-end job for 40 years with no growth, no potential, just to pay the bills? Are Are we actually comfortable just doing the daily grind every single day on repeat, shift, repeat, shift, repeat, with no end in sight? It's like La Havda, La Havda, there's a movie Groundhog Day where the guy goes through the same thing every single day until he finally wakes up and changes it. Do we want to do the same thing, shift, repeat every single day? What do we do all day? How do we spend our time? Can we say we had a productive day doing lots of mitzvahs, lots of Torah learning, lots of good for others when we look back at the day? Somebody once said that when you're sitting in bed 11, 12, 1 o'clock at night, halavai, it should be earlier, 10, whatever, when when you're getting ready to wind down and getting ready to sleep, can you look back in the day and pinpoint three good things you did that day? Can you pinpoint three good mitzvahs you did that day? Can you pinpoint something good you did for your spouse, for your kids that day? What do we look at when we look back at the day? Was it just a productive day at the office getting paperwork done? Or was a productive day in a Jewish life getting mitzvahs and chesed and Torah learning done? Was it comfortable or was it meaningful? Sometimes the two come together, but often they don't. Sometimes you have to choose meaning over comfort. And sometimes, unfortunately, we choose comfort over meaning. Was it impactful or just wasteful? Impactful or wasteful. Again, oftentimes we choose the wrong way over the other one. Did we spend all the time reading blogs or websites or did we learn Torah and give to others and effect a real Kiddush Hashem in our lives? 
When we stay where we are comfortable, we don't challenge ourselves and we don't rise to the occasion. We don't move out of the comfort zone. We need to rise above the comfort and challenge ourselves and surroundings and define what real comfort is. We're allowed to be comfortable. It's okay to be comfortable. But define what comfort is. We have to define what it really is and we, what we really need. Again, you don't need 17 bedrooms. You don't need 40 acres to be comfortable. People got around in life with much, much less, and they were very happy. Sometimes the happier people are the ones that had even less. I've been reading blogs, talk about reading blogs all day, not all day. Here and there, I've been reading blogs just to see out of curiosity that the families that are happiest actually are the ones which is uh, very against the grain in secular America, but the ones that have large families and small homes are actually much more happy than the people that have one or two kids and have huge houses. They say they waste the space, it feels empty, it feels bare bones, you, you try to spend more to fill it up, and it just doesn't feel right. It's such a waste. You can be comfortable in a small bedroom, three bedroom house. You don't need a den and a family room and a living room and three cars and lots of other meaningless things. Learn to live with less. Learn to need less. That's why, very interestingly, we were talking to a family in the summer who made Aliyah. They were going from this huge, huge house in our town, in our neighborhood, to a, a maybe a two, three bedroom apartment in Israel. And I was asking, is it difficult to leave this house? You were here for 30 years. And they say, yes, it's sad to leave. Yes, it's bittersweet. But we're going to Hashem's land. We're going to Israel. And it's a chance to learn what we don't need anymore, to let go. And they would post every day, every week, getting rid of this, getting rid of that, giving away this, giving away that, which was a chance to do a mitzvah chesed, not even charging people to give things away, which is one of my favorite things to see. And learning to take a life of 30 plus years and toning it down to a much smaller area. You could get rid of all the excessive things from this big, big, big house going to a two-bedroom apartment. And I've seen this with other families, also their families. It's called toning it down. It's called downsizing. Not downsizing in spirituality, downsizing materialistically. And one time a family of a friend of ours, the the families had a little bit of a of a going away to the house. They invited the siblings, all the children. The siblings came together, they said goodbye to the house, and the parents got rid of this big, 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 big house. They moved to an apartment a couple of blocks away and they're very, very happy. They downsized, they learned to live with less. They learned to need less. It's interesting when we're kids and when we're single, then God willing, we get married, you start in an apartment, and then you find a house, and sometimes you move to a bigger house, bigger house, and then it, the cycle begins. Then you, you cut down, you go smaller, smaller, smaller. Why do we have to go through such a crazy cycle? Why can't we find a modest medium, a modest in-between, a way to make it cohesive and fuse that we don't have to cut down, spend all this money to have all this space, and then you're going to get rid of that space anyway as the kids get older and move out anyway. You don't need a, a tremendous house for you and your wife. Once everybody's out of the house, what kind of nonsense, craziness? So there's a way to learn to live with less. There's a way to fuse it to be a happy medium, a happy equilibrium, to learn to need less. Understand needs versus wants, necessity versus extravagance. My whole idea now, we talk about this a lot on the OT show, is how to function in the space you have. How to make more functionality of the space you have. So that was the idea where I've been uh, I've been thinking every day, seeing these different things, having these different house projects in mind. So 
the idea was how to capitalize on this space you have. And they talk about this on the blogs, especially of large families that live in small houses, even regular families that live in small houses. So I went around and the closets, I had a lot of hooks to the closet, I had a lot of hooks, and it's not making holes in the walls because I don't do that. It's stick on hooks, don't you worry. And I made a lot of hooks in the bathrooms, both upstairs and downstairs, and hooks in the closet, and that's a way to capitalize on this space you have. And the idea is also to, to get a bigger fridge in this space we have, not to knock down walls or anything, which is a little crazy, but you capitalize on this space you have. And if people in life could learn to capitalize on the space you have, on the abilities that you have, and the talents you have, you could learn to live with comfort and maximize the comfort in the space you have. Maximize your talents in the life you have. Maximize all aspects of the life in what you currently have. We learn to define how to need less. We learn to understand needs versus wants. I need a big house or I want a big house. I need six cars or I want six cars. I need to have X, Y, or Z or I want to have X, Y, Z. I need to have a, de- a, sit of, a set of dairy dishes and fleshic dishes. Fact. As a religious Jewish observant person, I need to have dairy and meat. Fact. I personally need to have a, a kosher dairy sink and a kosher meat sink. When we were in, in the apartment, when we first started in Brooklyn, it was very difficult to have one sink. When we moved out to the boondocks, I said, nope, let's do this double sink, whether it has to be side by side or whatever you do. What is the need versus the want? Society tells us you need this, you need that, you need that, you need this, you need that. I looked at it, the average house in America, which is so not what I see in general life, they say it's 2,500 square feet because you're thinking about people that live in the middle of North Dakota where it's 300 grand to get a five-bedroom house. Okay, 2,500 square feet, but that's not what is needed. That's what's wanted for what America, secular America tells us. You know how many European countries actually don't even live in houses? A lot of people have only apartment buildings. You think about second world countries and third world countries. They don't even have houses. They don't even have apartments. They live in what they live in. They live with what they live. We understand need versus wants, especially in Israel. We'll talk about this in a little bit. I was there for two years studying. How many times did I go somewhere for Shabbos? And it was never a house. How many times did I go somewhere? It wasn't even a two- or three-story. It was a really tall-story building. You couldn't even walk up. A walk-up is a, is a luxury over there sometimes. But a lot of people, one of my favorite families to go to, I took my wife there also on our honeymoon. As a family, the Kanainahara has six kids. They started out with maybe a two-bedroom apartment in uh, in Efrat over there. And they and the, the husband is a carpenter. The father is a carpenter, very, very handy with his hands. And he made the apartment into a home. He added two bedrooms, very, very smart way how he did it. And they had a living room, a little, little, little kitchen, a little dining room, and then the four bedrooms and a very cute outdoor pergola area. And they were very, very happy. You would never know how much space they had or not. It definitely wasn't 2,500 square feet. Definitely wasn't even 2,000 square feet. Might have even been less square feet than the smallest house in our town. But they learned to understand how to live. And each kid would share a room. They were very happy and they made a whole area for us when we visited. You learn to live with less. You learn to understand need versus want. Necessity versus extravagance when society tells you necessity is extravagance we have a problem necessity versus extravagance learn to define what really is properly comfortable what properly is necessary not what society tells you that is needed for comfort in fact in this past parsha which was my bar mitzvah parsha baruch hashem was able to lay lay on shabbos and parshas vayachi rav shalom rosner an amazing rabbi in his own right explains in his sefer shalom rav 
about Yaakov mentioning about Mitzrayim. He asks Yosef, Yosef says, yes, I will do what you say. But why does Yaakov mention it in such a way? Please don't bury me in Mitzrayim. Why isn't he saying, please bury me in Israel? He talks about the negative rather than the positive. Why did Yaakov mention the negative of not wanting to be buried in Mitzrayim rather than the positive to be buried in Israel in Ma'arat HaMachpelah in Hebron with his forefathers? So Rashi explains that there were three reasons. Yaakov didn't want to be buried in the dirt of Egypt that would one day turn to lice during the Makos. That's number one. Number two, Yaakov did not want to have to roll to Israel at the time of the resurrection of the dead to Chayat HaMesim. And Yaakov did not want the Egyptians to worship him as a deity. All very interesting and good reasons, but doesn't fundamentally answer the question, why talk in the negative versus the positive? Why not ask to be buried in Israel in the positive sense? Rabbi Eliyahu Schlesinger, as pointed out by Rabbi Rosner, suggested at the end of Parshas Vayigash, the Torah states that Bnei Yisrael lived in Goshen, the area set aside as, as pointed out by Yosef, and the brothers talked about it, and they took hold of it. The Sefer Bracious says that they, they took hold of it, they grabbed it. This implies that Bnei Yisrael were getting a little too comfortable, a little too comfortable in Egypt. Yaakov already saw the writing on the wall. He saw what was happening to Am Yisrael, to the Jews, and realized the tremendous danger his descendants would be in if they felt too comfortable in exile. He saw that his children stood the risk of forgetting about Israel. Therefore, says Rabbi Schlesinger, Yaakov emphasized the fact that he didn't want to remain in Egypt. Even after his death, he didn't want to stay there, even to be buried there. He was telling his children that they were getting too comfortable outside of Eretz Yisrael, too comfortable outside of Israel. On a practical level, he also felt it would be too hard for the children to leave if he was buried there as well, cementing the presence there. Leaving behind Yaakov, the illustrious Yaakov, would be too difficult once they go on their way on their march through the desert to Israel. If he was there behind, it would have been too hard for them to, to go away from them. So he was instructing them not to call Egypt a permanent abode or to call it home. So how true, how practical for all of us as well. America is not our true home. Golas outside of Israel is not our true goal, is not our true home. Even if you can't end up going there, try to be buried there. Many people, we should know from such things, people should live on Meves and Shana. But there's a very big thing. There's a zechus to buy a plot of land to be buried in for a zechus of Arichat Yomim. There's a segula out there, and many people actually buy in Israel to be on Harazisim, to be over there, to be in a called a Beta Chayim, which is a play on words. The soul lives there, obviously, but it's really where the people are kavuras, where there are kavuras. But think about how to put Israel in our existence, even if we can't physically live there. When being buried in America, it is sort of solidifying the presence and connection to the land, which is not the connection we need to have or we should have. We want to be connected to Israel. Yaakov already saw this years and years and years ago, thousands of years ago. Don't get too comfortable in the land that is not Israel. 
That's why I say often that I think Hashem directed me personally to find a house that's X amount of money, not a million or two million, not even a half a million, even less than that, because he's telling me this is not where we're supposed to end up. No, I don't want you having a huge house in America. I don't want you having a mansion in America, Dafka, because I want you to use that money for Israel, the real permanent place to live. Maybe we'll be Zelcha to find a, a house in Israel at the right time for a million dollars, but to spend it in America doesn't make any sense because that's not where we're supposed to be. So why shell out half a million or a million or two million for a house that's really supposed to be temporary? We all say we want Mashiach to come, but how simple would it be to leave your house behind? I challenge all of us, myself included. We all talk about Mashiach coming, Mashiach, Mashiach, Mashiach. But if he came tomorrow... Who would get up and run and leave their house behind right away? Who would leave their possessions behind right away? Who would easily give up their house? People don't even want to downsize and move to Florida and move to apartments or move towns to be closer to the kids because they're so connected, so tied to their house. So the challenge to us is if Mashiach announced himself tomorrow, who would actually go right away? Who wouldn't have difficulty leaving their house behind to go? We saw this in the times of the second base of Mikdash, in Beit HaMikdash HaShemit, in, in, the, in the second temple. Ezra gets up and goes and announces that we're going back, we're building again. How many people do you think went with Ezra? Ezra and Nehemiah point out in the Pesukim, straight up in the text, it says 42,000 people went. So 42,000 sounds like a beautiful number, a wonderful number, but if you think about how many Jews were there at the time, it is a very depressing number. Because before the, the Shoah, let's say there were how many millions of Jews? Six, seven, eight million Jews, right? Even more, I don't know the math. But going back to Bayit Shani, Beisimikdashashini, there was much more than 40,000 Jews. Let's say there was 2 million, 3 million. Where were all the Jewish people? Where were they? Why didn't they go back? Somehow it was too difficult to leave their houses behind, to leave their lives behind. They were too comfortable. They were too settled in their lands. If the people in Ezra's time couldn't do it, and they didn't even have plumbing, they didn't have electricity, they didn't have air conditioning, they didn't have the beautiful modern conveniences that we have, they didn't have any cars or bicycles or anything like that. They couldn't do it. We think we could do it. We think we're going to do it. We talk the talk. We walk the walk. What are you believing for? What are you praying for? Are you really going to go? If he comes, honestly, truthfully, challenge yourself to think. If he came tomorrow, are you really ready to leave everything behind? Are you really ready to get out of your comfort? Are you really ready to leave America? To leave your job that makes six figures, your two cars, your seven houses, your home in the Catskills, your home in America, your home in Florida. Are you really ready to leave that behind? How comfortable are we really? Are we comfortable really? That's the challenge, the question to think about. There were many sages, including I believe the Chafetz Chaim, who actually had a backpack ready to go. The Chafetz Chaim lived a very sparse existence. We're going to talk about it in a little bit. His house, if you could call it that, his apartment or whatever, his shack was literally bereft of anything. The Chavetz Chaim knew that this is a transient life. He didn't deck his house out with anything because he felt this is just the Olam Hazed, it's the corridor to Olam Haba. What are we doing? Why are you getting so comfortable? 
If we know and believe that the true existence is with Mashiach, when this third base of English comes and it should be tomorrow, we need to feel that we're ready to go, and I don't believe many of us are ready to go, including myself. Don't get too comfortable where you are in life. Don't get too comfortable with what you're doing if it's not connected to what you're really meant to do, what you're supposed to do. Rabbi Baruz explains on H.com, which would you rather have, a comfortable life or a meaningful life? Unfortunately, you have to choose very often in life. If you want to think about it, think about it a little bit. Let it sink in. Do you want to live a comfortable life or a meaningful life? It's like the question, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? A lot of times in relationships with your spouse or with friends or with kids, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Do you want to be comfortable or do you want to be meaningful? In his unscientific study, Rabbi Bars found that nearly everyone answers a meaningful, comfortable life. Ha! They try to combine it. They try to make it a hybrid. They try to make it a connection of an essence fusing the two. That doesn't happen. Given the choice of comfort or meaning, just about everyone would choose meaning. But that is never how the choice appears. How it appears is that there are really three choices. Meaning comfort or comfortably meaningful as an extreme example extreme example this is rabbi bar's example not mine the western world knew that confronting the evil dictator in world war ii yamach shimon was the meaningful and right thing to do they also knew that the comfortable and wrong thing to do was to leave him alone given those two stark choices it wasn't just british prime minister chamberlain who thought that they found the perfect answer in signing a peace treaty with him. Most sided with him because being comfortable, meaningful, is just easier. It's also fairly easy to see these same types of mistakes on a much smaller level being made in the world today, and not just in politics, but in everyday life. For a small example, think about a teenager living at home. My kids are not teenagers. Those years make me a little worried. Hopefully they'll all be fantastic kids now as they are and always it's a teenager living at home it's nice and comfortable he would like it to be meaningful too and he wants to make meaningful decisions but he doesn't want to be held responsible when those decisions go awry because he doesn't really want meaning he wants comfort think about the jewish people going from the desert into israel going into the land of israel was not comfortable at all for the jewish people in the land of Israel, the Jewish people would have to fight evil themselves, cultivate the land. They had lived 40 years in a miraculous existence. They didn't have to do anything. Hashem let their clothing grow with them. Their food was absorbed from the man. They didn't have to use the bathroom. He set the path for them. The cloud would get rid of scorpions and spiders. It would level the land. It would keep them cool in the summer and warm in the winter. There was a light ahead of them. The cloud lifted to show them. They didn't have to do anything, but now they would have to cultivate the land. They weren't living a purely miraculous existence anymore. It was a major shift, a major change for them. It wasn't so comfortable anymore. They had to fight evil. They had to cultivate the land. They had to set up a system of government. They had to take care of each other. They had to fight for seven years. They had to split up the land with a lottery per Yehoshua for seven years. That's not comfortable. That's not easy. But it is extremely meaningful. 
We have to learn to live a real meaningful life, not just a comfortable one, and don't try to combine the two with messing up the priorities. Live with what you need. Get comfortable with that and make sure the life is really, properly meaningful with the life you have. Rabbi Left points out on H.com, at the very least, we should be hoping and anxiously anticipating returning to Israel when the Mashiach Messiah comes. We've derived this from the Rambam in the Hilchos Melachim in chapter Yud Aleph 11. Anyone who does not believe that the Messiah will come or who does not await his coming denies Torah. We must be aware that we are lacking something significant in our lives without Mashiach. There is no greater destruction to the Jewish soul than to lose the awareness of the bitterness of exile and the diaspora. There is a story told about a rabbi who was building yeshiva in America who, approached, who appreciated this idea. The contractor offered to use finished wood that lasts 150 years instead of regular wood, which usually lasts about 90 years. I never tried it in an experiment before it begins to rot. The rabbi said, use the regular wood. Why? We don't want to make our stay outside Israel too permanent. One of the questions that will be asked of us after 120 years in this world is whether we were Tzipisa Liyahoshua. Yeshua. Did we yearn for the salvation of God in Israel? Did we wait every day for Mashiach? Did we have a bag packed for Mashiach? Did we actually pine away for Mashiach? What does yearning mean? It's when a patient, Loelena, we should know from such things, takes a biopsy exam, needs to wait three days for the results to see if the growth is benign or not. We should never know from such things. Loelena. How he yearns, those three days last forever. And on the third day, every phone ring is met with anticipation. Will this finally be the call he's been waiting for? Do we yearn for Mashiach? Often we ask ourselves, why do we even need Mashiach? We're so comfortable, we're happy. What are we missing? This is a, system, a symptom of our spiritual malady. We no longer recognize the need to relate to God in the holiest place. And in the closest manner, which is what Mashiach will bring to the world, we utilize our comforts and freedoms in exile to serve God better, but we must never feel too attached to our culture and to the land that we're living in, especially if it's not our land, the chosen land, the land of Israel. We should yearn for the time when we will leave the exile forever and unite with our land, our nation, and God once again. Someday we will all be in Yerushalayim. Someday we will all be together. Moshe Rabbeinu will lead us, the famous song tells us. May it be soon. We should be Zoha that it is soon. It should be today. We don't even realize what we are missing. We're so enraptured and, and captured by Gullus and our comforts, we have lost the feeling of what it means to have no temple, no real sovereignty, no real peace in the land with a Torah true system of a king, a real king, a real government and a real Sanhedrin going by the law of Torah. We have lost what it feels like to have the presence of Hashem seen and felt daily. Can you imagine seeing a beautiful temple where sacrifices are offered, the Levites are singing, the Levim are singing, you see the holiness emanating from the temple, light is spewing to the world from the temple, and the peace, the real peace is felt in the world, and the Jews are seen as a light unto the nations, and people come to us, and want to offer up sacrifices and want to learn from us, that's a small smidgen of what we're missing. Karen Gottlieb points out on H.com a fascinating story about how to really feel the temple's loss. 
Every year when Tisha B'Av comes around, people sometimes have a certain dilemma. This is supposed to be a day on which we mourn the destruction of our temple. It is a day when we do not eat, drink, or wear leather shoes and follow varied and unique mourning customs. We, we can only learn certain things and, and we have to feel sad, we have to feel certain ways, and we have to understand what really happened. But it's very difficult to, co- to connect for many people. It's very hard to relate to what happened. Every year people arrive at the synagogue to hear the book of Eicha, the book of Lamentations, which bemoans the destruction of Yerushalayim. However, many, many often, unfortunately, every year end up daydreaming about totally unrelated things. As the cantor would be reading about the temple, they would completely disconnect, planning the summer vacation, celebrating the end of the exams, or hoping the fast will go well this year. It's difficult to be truly mournful over something that took place 2,000 years ago, something that we've never seen and don't really feel lacking in our daily life, unfortunately. As part of army service in the Israeli army, where the author was placed, this article from Ms. Gottlieb from Ish.com, to her delight in the teacher's unit, she was able to serve as at the Bat Hatzor caravan site located near Gadeira. The site held 700 caravans, which housed thousands of new Ethiopian immigrants. In the morning, she taught immigrants at the Yad Shabtai school in Ashdod. In the afternoon and evening hours, she served as a counselor on the site. This was shortly after Operation Solomon in 1993, during which roughly 14,500 Jews from Ethiopia were airlifted to Israel. It was a special and moving operation, and the entire Israeli population was surprised to see that suddenly there were Jews walking around here who had in fact been severed from our nation many generations ago. They They observed Shabbat, were familiar with most of the holidays and kept Jewish tradition in a devout and traditional manner, but it was clear they didn't know everything. The separation they had undergone throughout all those years had influenced their system of traditions. They had never heard of Independence Day or Yom Yerushalayim or even about Purim Hanukkah, none of the later historical events that took place subsequent to their breakout from the Jewish nation, which is fascinating. The author realized that unless she concentrated on filling these gaps of knowledge, their adjustment in Israel would never be complete. She decided to allot a considerable amount of time each day to teach them about Judaism. The month of Nisan had arrived and she started teaching about the holiday of Passover. The class consisted of 20 students, grades 3 to 6. They were placed according to their reading level rather than their chronological age. These children had come to Israel only a few months before and more than anything else they loved to hear stories, mainly because they didn't have to read or write in Hebrew, which was still quite difficult for some of them. The plan was first to connect Passover to the other holidays by very briefly reviewing the three major festivals during the year when the Jewish nation would ascend to Jerusalem. Today is the first day of Nisan and Passover celebrated on this month, she began. Passover is one of the three festivals when the entire Jewish people used to go to Jerusalem to the temple. At this point, a student jumped up, cutting her off mid-sentence. Teacher, have you ever been to the temple? She smiled at him, realizing that he was somewhat confused. No, of course not. That was a very long time ago. The student was insistent, and a few more pairs of eyes joined him. Fine, it was a long time ago, but were you there? Were you at the temple a long time ago? The author smiled again, this time slightly confused herself. Doesn't he understand? Perhaps the Hebrew is too difficult for him, she thought. No, of course not. That was a very long time ago. Now the rest of the students joined him in an uproar. You've never been there? 
teach her what it's like being in the temple. What does the temple look like? Quiet. She tried calming everyone down. Listen, everyone. There is no temple. There used to be a temple many years ago, but today we don't have a temple. It was destroyed, burned down. I have never been to it. My father's never been to it. My grandfather's never been to it. We haven't had a temple for 2,000 years. She said these words over and over, having a very hard time believing that this was so strange for them to hear. What's the big deal? This is the reality with which we've all grown up. Why are they so bothered by it? The tumult in the class was steadily increasing. They began talking among themselves in Amharic, arguing, translating, explaining, shouting as she lost total control over the class. When the bell rang, they collected their things and ran home. She left the school exhausted and utterly confused. The next morning, she was hardly bothered by the previous day's events. In fact, she had nearly forgotten it all, all about the incident. That day, she had planned to just teach math, geometry, and other secular subjects. She got off the bus and leisurely made her way toward the school. As she neared the gate, the guard approached her, seeming a bit alarmed. Tell me, he said, do you have any idea what's going on here today? She tried recalling a special activity that was supposed to be going on or some ceremony that she had forgotten about, but nothing exceptional came to mind. Why do you ask? She asked him. What happened? He didn't answer. He only pointed toward the entrance of the school. She raised her head and saw a sizable gathering of Ethiopian adult immigrants, apparently the students' parents. What are they doing here? And what are they yelling about? She went over to them, attempting to understand what was the matter from the little Amharic that she had knew, that she had known. As she came closer, everyone quieted down. One of the adults, whose Hebrew was on a higher level, asked her, Are you our children's teacher? Yes, she answered. What's the matter, sir? Our children came home yesterday and told us that their teacher taught them that the temple in Jerusalem no longer exists. Who would tell them such a thing? He looked at her in anger. She said, I told them that. We were discussing the temple, and I felt that they were a bit confused. So I explained to them that the temple had been burned down thousands of years ago, and that today we no longer have a temple. That's all. What's all the fuss about? He was incredulous. What? What are you talking about? She was more confused than ever. She said, I don't understand. Why are you all, what are you all so angry about? I simply reminded them of the fact that the temple was destroyed and that it no longer exists today. Another uproar, this one even louder than before. The representative quieted the others down and again turned to her. Are you sure? She said, am I sure that the temple was destroyed? Of course I'm sure. She couldn't hide her smile. What a strange scene. The man turned to his friends and in dramatic tone translated what she had told him. At this point, things seemed to be finally sinking in. Now, however, a different scene commenced. One woman fell to the ground. A second broke down in tears. A man standing by them just stared at her in disbelief. A group of men began quietly talking amongst themselves very fast, in confusion and disbelief. The children stood on the side looking on in great puzzlement. Another woman suddenly broke out into a heart-rending cry. Her husband came over to her to hug her. The teacher stood there in utter shock. She felt as if she had just brought them the worst news possible. It was as if she had just told them about the death of a loved one, God forbid. She stood there across from a group of Jews who were genuinely mourning the destruction of the temple. 
A few months later, it was Tishabov. The teacher had already been discharged from the army on the way to college, and the military service seemed as, it, as if it had been such a very long time ago. As she did every year, she went to synagogue. Everyone was already seated on the floor. As is customary for mourners, she was waiting to hear the Book of Lamentations, Eicha. She had expected, as in previous years, for this to be a time for some daydreaming and hoped she wouldn't get too hungry. The Megillah reading began, and she started reading the first two verses. Alas, she sits in solitude, like a widow. She, whips bitter, she weeps bitterly in the night, and her tear is on her cheek. She has no comforter from all her paramours. All of her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. Suddenly, that first day of Nisan began replaying in her mind the angry looks of those children, the parents' screams, the mother's crying, the men's pitiful silence, the shock they were overcome with as they received the terrible news as if she had just told them about the death of a loved one. Lola, Lena, we should never know from such things. At that moment, she understood. She understood this was exactly how we were supposed to mourn the temple on Tisha B'av. We're supposed to cry over the loss of the unity and peace throughout the entire world. We're supposed to lament the disappearance of the divine presence and holiness from our lives in Israel. We're supposed to be pained by the destruction of our spiritual center, which served to unify the entire Jewish nation. We're supposed to feel as if something very precious has been taken away from us forever. We're supposed to feel as if something is very wrong, very lost. We are meant to cry, to be shocked, to be angry, to break down. We are supposed to mourn over the destruction of the temple, to cry over a magnificent era that has been uprooted from the face of the earth. The incredible closeness that we had with God, the feeling that He is truly with us and within us, has evaporated and disappeared into thin air. Now when Tisha B'Av rolls around, she goes back to that incident with her students and their parents and tried to reconnect to that meaningful lesson that they had taught her what it truly means to mourn for the loss of the Holy Temple. We have gotten too comfortable and too distanced from what we have lost in the Temple and from what really matters in life. We should not focus on our materialism and our homes and our cars, but on what really matters, what's really lost, what we really can take with us after 120 years. As Pirkei Avos teaches us, one of my favorite missions in the whole Pirkei Avos, we talk about it on the TTPA. When we look at Parak Dalad Mishnah Aleph, Ben Zoma says, Ezehu Ashir HaSameach Bechalko. Who is really happy? Who is truly content? He who is content with his life, with his lot, and with his life, really. Ohev Kesev Lo Yisbak Kesev. We're taught from the Gemara, the Talmud teaches someone who is pursuing money, who wants money, will never be satisfied with money. Someone who wants a hundred grand, will not stop at 100, will want 200. Someone who wants 1 million will not stop at 1, will go to 2. We're also taught in Pirkeiavos that this world is for real work. This world is the antechamber. It's not the real chamber. It's not the wedding hall. It's only the shmorg. Don't fill yourself on the shmorg when there's a huge, beautiful steak for you at the main table of the simcha. This world is for real work. The next world is for reaping the rewards. This world is like an antechamber. The next world is the real chamber. Do the work here. Don't get too comfortable. Remember what is missing. Yearn for the spiritual. Yearn for the temple. Work for what's important. Debbie Godfriend points out on H.com, the bottom line, if you want success of any kind, you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Every minute, every hour, every day that you sit around trying to figure out what to do, someone else is already doing it. 
Make a choice or a choice will be made for you. Don't sit around too long overthinking what to do. Ultimately, we are judged by what we do. Don't wait until you are ready. None of us ever is. Anyone can start something. Few can finish. And that's also from Pirkei Avos. You cannot say that I was too busy, I was too that, I couldn't finish it, why even start? It's on you to start. You don't have to finish, but you have to start. That first staff in Daf Yomi, that first Pasik in Shtayim Mikra and Bereshis, that first idea, that first podcast, that first article, that first speech, that first this, that first that, start it. We don't know where it will go, but at least you have to start. Don't feel comfortable saying, I didn't have time, I could have done this, I could have done that. Don't come up after 120 years and Hashem asks you, using my name as an example, were you the best Nasa Mordechai you could have been? I want to be able to answer, yes, I was the best I could have been. Don't come up to Hashem and say, I don't even remember my name. That's why we say the Sukkim of our names after Shemona Esrei, for those of you who do it. Each name has a relative Pasuk that goes with the first and last letter of each name. Mine, I try to say Blineder at the at my Shmona Esrei's, because when you come after 120 years, Hashem is going to ask you, but you could have done this, you could have done that. We shouldn't be asked such a question. Hashem will, we want Hashem to say after 120, yes, you accomplished your life purpose. Yes, you did your mission, you used your talents, you did start something. Maybe you weren't able to finish it 100%, but at least you started. Priorities change if you don't constantly protect and defend them. If we don't consistently work to make our values the most important elements in our lives, we will lose our grasp on what is essential for us. Guard your values. The greatest battles you will, greatest battles you will ever fight are with yourself. And you must always be your toughest opponent. Always demand more of yourself than others demand of you. Very good quote. Always demand more of yourself than others demand of you. Nobody asks you to do this. Nobody asks you to do that. You should ask yourself to do this. You should ask yourself to do that. You should be the one judging yourself. You should be the one pushing yourself. You should be the one who is pushing yourself to do more. Always demand more of yourself than others demand of you. Life can be complicated, but the truth is not. Don't ever feel too complacent or comfortable in life. Are we comfortable? Really? At that point, you will no longer challenge yourself or work on yourself. You get too comfortable, nothing will get done. You will not try to push yourself forward or harder to do more. At that point, all is almost loss. Make sure to consistently ask yourself, constantly ask yourself, are you comfortable? Really? And why are you comfortable? What can you do outside your comfort? How can you work on yourself to do more? to give more, to make more of a difference, to change the world for the better and realize what's really important and what comforts are really necessary versus what you want, versus what's extravagance. Start with the little things, little changes. Then the true comfort will come and true change can happen. If you have a talent, you have to use it. If you have a media, a trait that could be used for good or bad, persistence versus stubbornness, we talked about this. I'm very persistent. Could be good, could be bad. Try to use it for good. If you have a talent, you have a meter, you have to use it. You have to push it forward. You have to get things done. Don't wait and waste for over every decision. Just get things done. Do it now. Do it fast. Don't wait. I am very against that. I like to do things as fast as possible. A little bit too hot to trot to get things done. You could say a little too much to the grind to the gear. But we have to start with little things, little changes, little by little. Understand where true change can happen. 
Listen to the story from Nisano Safran on Aish.com. The year was 1872. The door to Tom's ramshackle beach hut suddenly burst open, flooding the small room with rays from the morning sun. The boy squinted as he propped himself up from his thin straw mattress. He groaned uh, as he recognized the silhouette of his uncle Bluebeard the pirate with his sword dangling jauntily off his hip. Tom gulped as he noticed the crinkled envelope his uncle was waving before him. It was the letter to England that Tom had planned to send out with a messenger the next day. Tom had always gotten along well with his uncle, who had raised him since he had been orphaned as a young child, but now the large man's usually jolly face was contorted into an angry snarl. Tom Cook, what is the meaning of this letter? he growled. What do you mean you don't want to be a pirate anymore? Tom caught his breath. Standing up by now with his nightshirt brushing against his knees, he swallowed and said, Surely you've read my letter, uncle. As I've written, I plan to sail to England as soon as I can, where I hope to find an honest job and... The pirate threw back his head in laughter. Ha ha ha! His big silverly blue beard shaking as he laughed. Surely you jest, boy! He exclaimed, Why, your father was a pirate, his father before him. You might say it's a family business. Although Tom felt frightened, he stood his ground. I've been giving it some thought, and I've come to the conclusion that being a pirate is wrong. What kind of a life is it? Sinking ships, robbing, and hurting innocent people. I can't do it, and I won't. Seeing that his nephew was serious, the pirate softened his look and tried to appeal to the boy's emotions. Listen, son, your whole life is here on Pirate Island. Why, you don't even know a soul in England. Why give up a good, comfortable life? Only the squawk of Tom's parrot cut through the silence in the small room as man and boy stared at each other, stared each other down. Tom felt himself shaking. His uncle was right, he thought. It would be difficult to leave the people in the life he had known. It wouldn't be comfortable. Yet he knew deep down that their lifestyle was wrong and that he couldn't stay. Finally, the boy spoke up. I love you, Uncle Bluebeard, but I'll be sailing for England with the next Merton Chimchip. Somehow I'll make it. I have to live according to my principles and I refuse to live a life that's wrong. A pirate's life is not for me. Sometimes... Even when something feels familiar, feels safe, feels comfortable, it is still not the right choice. Are we comfortable? Really? Is our life meant for something greater? Something more meaningful? Something of substance? Something of more value? Even if all you ever knew was one way of life, step out of that comfort and familiarity and rise above to see what greatness lies in store. Listen to this other story from Nassano Safran on H.com. Ruthie Emanuel was sitting on her bed reading when her sister Jackie burst in. Get ready, she said. Mom and Dad are taking us to the zoo. Ruthie got very excited. For months, she had wanted to go to the beautiful new zoo that had opened up outside of the city. All her friends had raved about it, especially the giant elephant that was supposed to be the biggest in the whole country. But her parents had been really busy at work. They weren't able to find the time until now. Ruthie quickly got dressed, grabbed her crutches that she had been using since she had badly sprained her ankle skiing last month, and hopped and hobbled down the stairs. Even though the doctor had told her she really didn't have to use the crutches anymore, Ruthie had become very dependent on them, and in her opinion, she definitely still needed them. Downstairs, she found her family already gathered with picnic lunch and all ready to go. 
They packed into their minivan and set off for the zoo. It wasn't a short trip, but the kids didn't mind since they were so excited to be going. Finally, they saw a sign with an elephant on it that looked as big as a house, and they knew they had arrived. The Emanuel kids packed out of the van. Ruthie, who was sitting in the back seat, turned to Jackie and asked, Could you please get me my crutches from the back of the van so I can get out too? Sure, Jackie said with a smile. Ruthie waited and waited, but her sister didn't reappear. After a few minutes, Jackie came up to the car door with a serious look on her face. The rest of the family was gathered behind her. Ruthie, I'm so sorry. Your crutches aren't anywhere. I guess in the excitement, nobody remembered to pack them. Oh, no, cried Ruthie. What am I going to do? Ruthie's father determined that there wasn't enough time to go home to get the crutches and get back to the zoo. In the end, the family realized there was really no choice. Ruthie would have to stay behind in the van with her dad to keep her company. Even though Mr. Emanuel did his best to cheer his daughter up, the girl was crushed at having to miss the zoo. A few minutes later, her dad turned to her and said, You know, there is an alternative. What do you mean? asked Ruthie. Her dad smiled softly and said, You remember what the doctor said last time? He said that you're ready to walk without your crutches. Ruthie got upset. But dad, she sobbed, you don't understand. I still need my crutches. I simply can't walk without them. Okay, it's your decision. In the meantime, I'm going to get some drinks. While her father went to the nearby refreshment stand, Ruthie sat feeling very sorry for herself. She thought about what her father had said. She did want to walk. And she certainly didn't want to miss out on the zoo. But how would she ever manage without her crutches? Suddenly, as if on impulse, Ruthie leaned out of the van and put one foot on the pavement. She slowly lowered the other foot and stood up for the first time in a long time without her crutches. It felt a little funny, but it really didn't hurt. Ruthie whispered a short prayer and took a step. Then another. Then another. She felt as though she had been let out of a prison. Her dad headed back with the drinks and was pleasantly surprised to see his daughter walking toward him. Hey, look at you! Come on, let's get to the zoo! Let's go to the zoo! They left a note on the van and walked into the zoo, heading straight to the elephant exhibit. Ruthie gaped in awe at the mammoth beast and said, Look at what giant steps he takes! Her father took her hand and with a smile said, True, but they are not anywhere as big as the ones you took today. Sometimes sitting in the van seems like the more logical, more comfortable choice. But if we would just leave the van, take that step, try out our legs in life, there's so much we could do. Are we comfortable? Really? We need to determine that for ourselves. The Kutzko Rebbe said, There is nothing so whole as the broken heart. Once you recognize that the world is not meant to be nice, The world is not meant to be comfortable. The world is not meant to be certain or easy, but that it is set up to be the ideal training ground for the heart. You can trust in God because the world is working just as it should be. The suffering or difficulty in our lives almost never makes sense in the moment and only reveals its logic in time. Have you ever looked back over a section of your life or your whole life itself and only been able to see the storyline in retrospect? How many people have you heard say something like, losing that job turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me? Though at the time it seemed like a blow to the solar plexus. Maybe you've already had an experience like that yourself. But we could also find more measured voices telling us that while our destiny is surely in the hands of God, we are still obliged to make our own efforts. 
to rely exclusively on God implies that we have absolutely nothing in hand to bring about change, when that is seldom, if ever, the case. Everyone has some powers that are gifted to them, like the ability to think, to speak, to write, to lift objects, to move about, to care. And even if you are lacking one or more of these capacities, you should put what capabilities you do have to work to bring about the outcomes you see to be the best, rather than rely totally on God. God is the source of these capacities. So wouldn't it dishonor those gifts, and especially their giver, not to put them to use? We have to put our best foot forward and move along in life, past the comfort, into the uncomfortable zone. Hashem gives us gifts and talents, and we must use them. Think about the following example that I myself made up. Yankel Zimmers of Ocean Point had been working at Amish Point Bank for over 20 years. No, it was not owned by Amish people. It's just the name of the street nearby. However, he always had a small nagging feeling at the back of his brain that this is not what he was meant to do. Ever since he could remember, he loved playing with trains. He took the train every chance he could, including going and coming from work. He would marvel at the craftsmanship of the power of the trains and even peek to the driver's section at one time or another, thinking how awesome it would be to actually get his hands dirty fixing and working on trains. He had always collected model trains as a hobby, but that's all it was, he thought. A hobby. Why leave such a comfortable job, such a comfortable life? His job at Amish Point was 9 to 4 with an hour lunch break and an hour for breaks throughout the day with a cushiony salary, comfortable office, and heating and cooling year-round. Plus, the commute wasn't even 45 minutes. However, even though it was a comfortable life working as a bank teller, sitting and doing interactions from the air-conditioned office for Yankel, one day he finally got to thinking, was that really his calling His real passion was in fixing trains. Why does he work in the bank? Where did that even come from? How did it even come about? He couldn't even remember, aside from his dad, the ever-practical Moishe Zimmers, telling him that this was a good job for a good Jewish boy with a good head on his shoulders. But this is not what he really wanted to do in life. No, it definitely wasn't. Yes, it is more uncomfortable to be out in the hot sun working on the train, but that is where his skills lie. That is where his passion is. That is where his talents and his needs and wants are. And his skills and real talents are not where it is comfortable in the bank office. Yankel realized it was finally time for a choo-choo change. Pun intended. It is time for a real change. He then put in two calls on his phone. The first was to his wife. The second was to the train division of the nearby transportation authority. We need to wake up before it's too late to get out of our comfort zone. Don't be like Yankel. Don't wait 20 years to realize what you're really meant to do. Don't stay in a dead-end or boring, unfulfilling job just because it's comfortable. Get out of your comfort zone. Follow what's really meaningful and passion-filled with using your talents for you in your own life. Are we comfortable? Really? Rabbi Moskowitz explains on H.com, the key to change an activity from a chore to a gift is in one word. 
In her book, No Sweat, How the Simple Science of Motivation Can Bring You a Lifetime of Fitness, Mitchell Seeger, Michelle Seeger argues that by simply changing one word in your vocabulary, reframing the task at hand, you could dramatically increase your chances of success. Instead of saying to myself, I have to run, I say to myself, I get to run. I have to versus I get to. Why does changing that one word from have to get make such a difference? Research shows that we are much more likely to continue an activity if we view the activity as a gift or an opportunity rather than an obligation. Saying I have to do something robs me of my autonomy and forces the activity upon me. It represents something that I'm doing unenthusiastically or worse, something I'm doing against my will. Saying I get to do something means that it's my choice. I get to do it because I want to. I have to record my podcasts? No. I get to record my podcasts. Changing that one word reframes your mindset from I am forced to do this thing to aren't I lucky to be able to do that thing? But that alone may sometimes leave us unmotivated and uninspired. If that's the case, our response must be to reframe it. Every time you sit down to study our sacred Torah, don't just do it because you have to. Tell yourself proudly, I get to learn Daf Yomi. I get to learn Shtayimikra. I get to learn Perkeavos. Learning Torah and living my life according to its values is the greatest privilege and opportunity a person can dream of. The ability to open up God's roadmap for this world and elevate our lives is the greatest honor. Whether it's going for a run or opening up a safer to learn, finding motivation will always be a challenge. Just make sure to remind yourself you don't have to do it. You get to do it. Leaving the comfort behind because you want to do something is a great step. Think I get to versus I have to, especially to fight against the comfortable in life. I get to use my talents for good is a great motivator to fine-tune what to do in life. For me personally, in college, I used my voice for a college radio show weekly for Narish Guide, for garbage, for meaninglessness. A few years ago, when Hashem put the ideas in my head to make podcasts, I said to myself, I want to and have to do this, but I have to use it for good. If I get to do this, I must get it done with the right outlook for a helpful and Torah-like ways, and hence the shows came about. We need to think what to do and that we get the privilege to do so. Thus, how can we waste our years in comfortable, cushy jobs that don't match our talent and real abilities? How can we waste time just to accumulate wealth or a big house or cars that don't stay with us after 120? As an example against comfort, especially materialistic, think about Sukkot. As Rabbi Khan explains on H.com, Sukkot is a time when we leave the comfort of home to go reside in a temporary shack, a dwelling known as a Sukkah. In the words of the Talmud and Sukkah, we dwell in the shack as if it were our home. Thus, it is Jewish practice to have one's meal in the Sukkah. Those who are particularly fastidious also read, study, entertain, and even sleep in the Sukkah. The joy of Sukkot is to some extent a celebration of that love. We may leave our permanent homes, but when we enter the Sukkah, we enter in a body that is protected by God directly. And all the illusions of our man-made edifices, which bring so many of us comfort or angst when they are threatened, are placed aside and put into perspective. We focus on that which really brings stability in our lives, God. Nonetheless, there is a high degree of comfort in a home, any home, even one when you are being held back spiritually. Even in such a home, people often feel comfort and find it preferential to the unknown. Use your inner power to see beyond creature comforts and materialistic comforts. Seek comfort in the spiritual and the divine. 
So think about Sukkot when we think about if we're really comfortable. I apologize we're going a little longer than usual. Just there was a plethora of what to talk about. So please stay with me. So think about Sukkot when we think about if we're really comfortable. Think about so many mitzvahs that ask us to go out of our comfort zone. For many, one mitzvah they find excruciating difficult is a shiva call visit. Though we should never know from such things. People feel incredibly embarrassed, uncomfortable, and unnerved to make a shiva call. Especially if it's to a person they knew well in the past. What is a mitzvah that feels makes you uncomfortable, that feels uncomfortable? What's a mitzvah that takes you out of your comfort zone? What could be done about it to make it a little more comfortable? The existence of this world is so short, just a measly 120 years. Why work to be beyond comfortable if we don't take anything with us? Why work to have a mansion and three cars when it doesn't travel along with us? There's a famous story of the Chavetz Chaim explained on TorchWeb.org. A wealthy American businessman, and we referenced this before, who was passing through the Polish town of Rodin, paid a visit to the home of the leader of his generation, the saintly Rabbi Yisrael Meir Hakogin Yetzal, Zatzal, known to all as the Chavetz Chaim. Upon entering the home, he was struck by how sparsely it was furnished. Where is all your furniture? the businessman asked. And where is yours? replied the Chavetz Chaim. Somewhat startled by the response, the businessman said, Oh, I am only passing through. To which the Chafetz Chaim replied, I too am only passing through. What the Chafetz Chaim taught the businessman is that we are all just passing through this world on our way to the next world, echoing the 2,000-year-old teaching of our sages who wrote in Ethics of the Fathers in 421, Rabbi Yaakov said this world is like a lobby before the world to come. Prepare yourself in the lobby so you can enter the banquet hall. In the Talmud and Avodah Zarah, there's a similar saying, this world is like the eve of Shabbos, and the world to come is like the Shabbos. Who prepares on the eve of Shabbos will have food to eat on the Shabbos. The sages are telling us that the most important teaching in all of Judaism, arguably, that this physical world we live in is not our final destination, but rather a place to prepare ourselves for our ultimate home in the next world, like a lobby leading into the banquet hall. If we occupy ourselves with Torah study, mitzvah, observance, and character refinement while we are still in the lobby of this world, we will be able to enjoy the great world we will receive, reward we will receive in the banquet hall that is the world to come. If we forget that we're only passing through this world and we preoccupy ourselves for most of our lives with all our furniture and other mundane pursuits, neglecting our spiritual side, then what will we have to enjoy for all eternity in the world to come? How tragic and even painful will it be if after we die we find ourselves in the next world with nothing to show from our time spent in this world aside from some furniture we bought for our home. Don't live to work. Work to live. Don't work to be uber comfortable. Work to have your needs. Work to provide for your family. Work to provide a modest roof over your head with a car or two. That's enough for those who live in countries where they don't even have houses. So why shouldn't it be enough for us? My friend grew up in Williamsburg in a two-bedroom apartment with eight kids. Somehow he grew up well, well-adjusted, and with great meadows, even better than the rest of us. Why do people think they need five bedrooms and an acre of lands? Every kid needs its own bedroom, and a bedroom and a half makes no sense. Comfort is defined as in vastly extravagant terms, but really think about what's truly necessary for regular comfort, but define what comfort really means. Chabad.org points out from Elisheva Greenbaum One of the viral videos that people were sending a few years ago was an Israeli advertisement for GPS. The ad was set in the Sinai Desert with thousands of ragtag Jews following Moses and whining about the time they'd spent wandering around in circles on their lonely 40-year march from Egypt. Suddenly a miracle, Moses stretches forth his staff and a GPS device appears in the sky to lead them directly to Israel.
It was reasonably clever, mildly funny, but no more so than any of the hundreds of other must-see YouTube clips. The truth is that the Jews did not spend all those years traipsing endlessly around the desert. Throughout the whole 40 years, they only made 42 journeys, if you do the math. 11 of those were during the first year out of Egypt, with a further flurry of 11 journeys over the last year before entering the Israel. That leaves a grand total of 19 trips over the intervening 38 years. Hardly anyone's idea of peripatetic a peripatetic excuse me, existence. In fact, at one location, at one location they spent 19 years straight, enough time for an entire generation to be born, marry, and even have their own kids, all without ever needing to leave home. A guess is that stability depends less on how often one is forced to uproot oneself than one's sense of self-determination, the feeling that one has personal control over one's future. The Jews of the desert may have remained relatively undisturbed for years at a stretch, but they had no way of knowing from one day to the next how long they could expect to stay where they were. At any time, with almost no warning, the clouds of glory that accompany them on their travels could rise into the sky, signifying they were about to leave. Every single day of their sojourn, they would have found themselves staring up into the heavens above, watching and wondering what the morrow would bring. That's precisely the lesson that our time in the desert was meant to teach us. There are no guarantees in life. Nothing is forever. No one ever guaranteed your permanent residence and past performance is no indication of future returns. The only one constant is that whenever we travel in life, we are led by Hashem. He is directing our footsteps. Wherever we go, it's as God says, say so. How long I stay here depends entirely on Him. The choice left to me is how I utilize the time I've been allotted. Hopefully 120 years for all of us and what inspiration and memories I leave behind me when I'm gone. Life is truly a journey. It's my responsibility to make sure that my efforts help others enjoy the trip. We must realize life is a journey we should never get too comfortable. We have to push ourselves to so many things and many mitzvahs that don't come naturally. There are many mitzvahs that ask us to go beyond our comfort zone, having to go to minion for a shy person or holding the arba minion for someone that has sensory issues. Someone with bad organizational skills might find it difficult to have two sets of dishes for everything. And it might be difficult for us to, to direct our heart and abilities to do what we're meant to do in the world. And to and it's hard not to lose track of the end goal of being for Hashem and living for Hashem, doing mitzvahs and chesed. Understanding that this world is only a stop along the journey. And understanding what it really means to go out of our comfort zone. What will we do in the world? Even the sources throughout the Talmud, throughout Tanakh, show us that we have to understand where we come from. Devarim points out when you've eaten, be satisfied. When you build comfortable homes in which you dwell, don't become haughty. Don't forget Hashem. Don't say to yourself, my strength, the bite of my hand did this. Remember, it's Hashem. Chavos Havavos teaches us, be prepared for the journey, for moving on. Don't become comfortable and settled in. Understand the land is not sold permanently. Mishnah Makos points out the more comfortable their lives in the city refuge, the less urgency they'll feel to leave, the less likely they'll pray for the death of the high priest, because we can't get too comfortable in life. Don't forget where everything came from and who gave it to you. Serve Hashem properly. Don't rely too much on yourself. Don't step off the path to indulge in creature comforts. Gemara Psachim points out eating inexpensive foods while sitting in a comfortable place is good, but don't eat expensive geese and chickens as your heart will pursue you. You'll develop a taste for luxury. Mar Nevuchim Rambam points out, we join the Feast of Tabernacles to the Feast of the Eighth Day to complete our rejoicings, which cannot be perfect in booths, but in comfortable and well-built houses. Gitin points out, Rabbi Chia points out, the period before the Persians reached Babylonia was a time when life was very comfortable. Or Chaim points out on Shemos, the Torah chooses the word Lenachosam to indicate that God made the journey comfortable. When it was hot, God made the clouds spread over them to protect them against the sun. Because Hashem gives us things to be comfortable. But it has to be a certain degree. It can't be the end-all and be-all. It can't be extravagant. 
Chaskuni points out in Vayikra, most people do not feel comfortable in living in rented homes. They're always worried that they're going to be thrown out. Redeeming Relevance points out in Bereshis, it's that that's the reason we have to learn from the Avos and Imals, that we live in the real world where choices are not comfortable and not easy. Rabbeinu Bachaya or Bachya points out in Shemos, Pasik teaches us anyone who has ample food supplies a comfortable lifestyle is obligated to devote time to Torah study because sometimes choices are not easy, not comfortable. If Hashem blesses you with comfort, make sure to use it wisely to do good and learn Torah and do mitzvahs and chesed. Rabbeinu Bachaya points out in Vayikra, the desolation will be experienced by your enemies who will never feel comfortable in your land. This verse is good news for the Jewish people. The Rabbeinu Bachaya points out in Numbers, if we are comfortable with our national character, we must also learn to be just as comfortable with all parts of our identity. The land flourishes under our hand when we live there. Why do we feel comfortable in Gullus? It's not our land. It's not our home. We should yearn and pine for the Holy Land, feel a real loss. Like the children families of the Ethiopia, when thinking about not living there and what we lost there in the Holy Land. Torah points out in Vayikra, building huts at the time of fall, approaching winter, leaving more comfortable quarters in favor of flimsy shelter. We should remind ourselves what comfort means. Ein Yaakov points out in Tanis, should be distressed not to live to see the relief of the community. In another Bryce, we're taught that when the community is in distress, one must not say, I'll go to my house and take care of myself and be comfortable. Pina Halacha points out in the Yamim Noraim, in such cases, the judgment of Rosh Hashanah can determine whether someone destined to have money will be comfortable, rich, or wealthy, or whether the opposite, God forbid. Because Hashem set out for us how the year will be by Rosh Hashanah. Others might not be so fortunate. Think about how to help others. Let's suck us in other times and missiles remind us we can't get too comfortable. And how about those who aren't comfortable at all? The Torah Aruch points out in Shemos, the words V'yasiz Kamachtach refer to activities which are needed to maintain the body in healthy condition, activities designed to make life more comfortable and enjoyable. The legends of the Jews point out he was unable to stand this person. He seated himself on a stone. Who was this person? Moshe. Disdaining a soft and comfortable seat, saying, As long as Israel is fighting in distress, I shall share it with them. By the war with the Amalek. Legends of Jews also point out that strangers were invited into their house, set before them food and drink as best they could, and made up a comfortable couch for them for the night. Gemar Menachos points out any item one would not feel comfortable bringing to a governor or local ruler may certainly not be brought to the temple, because we should take care of ourselves and others to have a basic level of comfort. But if others are fighting or in pain or in difficulty, we need to lessen our comfort and feel their plight. Daf Shavuot to Kosuvos points out once a bride is in her father-in-law's home, she is comfortable with her husband no longer shy around him, so too Israel will someday be comfortable in God's house. Redeeming Relevance points out in Shemos, instability can be very productive. We should not be so quick to make our lives so comfortable. Between Yesterday and Tomorrow points out there is no happiness, no peace, no comfort in this world because everyone thought only of himself or thinks of himself, of his own happiness, his own peace, his own comfort. We need to think of others. When we get caught up in the vanity, materialism, of selfishness, and of gullus, we lose sight of where we really need to be and of what we really need to do in life. Don't be selfish. Don't think Gullus is the end-all and be-all. Don't make yourself uber-comfortable, especially outside the Holy Land. Feel that your home in Gullus is temporary, not the final destination. And the last three sources teach us in Sefer Yashar, the righteous man, when he goes forth from trouble to a comfortable state, he gives thanks to Hashem and says, Why should I think no troubles will still come upon me? Tafish Shavuot points out, Ravasi makes sure they're always comfortable being either the shade or the sun, depending on what they want at the moment. Nowadays, we have air conditioners. The Jewish Spiritual Heroes teaches, as we said, Rav believed in a comfortable and quiet life. He used to save certain people that their life was not living. For instance, tent dwellers and those who wandered the desert. And lastly, in the narrow places, when we're comfortable, there's no reason to change. When we are comfortable, there's no reason to change. And being relevance, lastly, lastly, since it is God who has given us the potential, even the directive to do so, it's perfectly legitimate for a man to try to earn a stable and comfortable livelihood to an extent. The basic level of comfort is understandable and proper, but realize anything can change at any time. 
It's all in Hashem's control. Don't look for comfort. Look to make a difference. And that's the points to wrap up. Don't get too comfortable in life. Don't forget where everything came from and who gave it to you. Serve Hashem properly. Don't rely too much on yourself. Don't step off the path to indulge in creature comforts because Hashem gives us things to be comfortable, but it has to be to a certain degree. It can't be the end-all and be-all. It can't be extravagant. Sometimes choices are not easy or comfortable. However, if Hashem blesses you with comfort, make sure to use it wisely to do good. Learn Torah, do mitzvahs, and do chesed. The land flourishes, the land of Israel, under our hand when we live there. Why do we feel good and comfortable in Gullus? It's not our land, it's not our home. We should yearn and pine for the holy day, feel a real loss like the children and families of Ethiopia when thinking about not living there, what we lost there in the holy land. If Mashiach came tomorrow, would we actually feel comfortable and okay to leave everything behind? I challenge you to think, would you actually leave everything behind if Mashiach came? We pay lip service, but actuality, in your heart, think about it. And if it's not there, train your heart to be there. Make a go-bag for Mashiach, a Mashiach go-bag, an MGG, Mashiach go, MGB, a Mashiach go-bag. Get ready to go for Mashiach if he would come tomorrow. Leave your house, leave your cards, it's not important. Living in the land with Mashiach and Hashem and the Beit HaMikdash, that's what's most important. Make your Mashiach go bag and be ready to go. Hashem set out for us how the year will be by Rosh Hashanah. Others might not be so fortunate. Think about how to help others. Let Sukkot and other times and missiles remind us we can't get too comfortable. How about those who aren't comfortable at all? We should take care of ourselves and others to have a basic level of comfort. But if others are fighting or in pain or in difficulty, we need to lessen our comfort, feel their plight. When we get caught up in the vanity materialism of selfishness and of gullus, we lose sight of where we really need to be. We lose sight of the yearning for Mashiach and thinking if we would actually go. Think about what we really need to do in life. Don't be selfish. Don't think gullus is the end all and be all. Don't make yourself uber comfortable. Don't spend a million or two million on a house when it's not even where we're supposed to be. You know we're supposed to be in Israel. This is not where we're supposed to be. Don't spend all your savings, all your money, all your livelihood on a house because you think it's your forever house. It's not. Israel is our forever home. Don't be overcomfortable, especially outside of Israel. Feel that your home in Gullus is temporary, not the final destination. The basic level of comfort is understandable and proper, but realize anything can change at any time. It's all in Hashem's control. Don't look for comfort. Look to make a difference. Comfort on a basic level makes sense and is good, but don't put too much effort into comfort and materialism. The question is, are we comfortable really Hopefully we are in basic comfort but not feeling too settled in gullus, not staying in only comfort areas of mitzvahs, and not staying in comfortable jobs that are not what we are supposed to be doing in life. Think of Yonkel. It took him 20 years. We need to push ourselves outside of comfortability, outside of just trying to make money and have a huge house and many cars because that's not important. It doesn't come with us. It doesn't stay with us after 120. We have to realize we can't be in lands outside of Israel permanently. It's not where we're supposed to live. We have to realize we can't only do the mitzvahs that are comfortable, but we must do all of them and as much chesed, mitzvahs and Torah, as much as possible, especially ones that are out of our comfort zone, especially ones that are uncomfortable. We must make sure not to stay in jobs or works that don't make sense for us just because they're cushy jobs, like an Amish Point Bank. Get out of the comfort. Focus on doing the good in the world, and the whole world will be so much brighter, so much better, so much sooner, hopefully starting today, and may we be zochet to see Mashiach today, and really let go of all materialism, let go of all comfort, and join him in the building of the base Megdash, may it speedily come today, bimhera bimenu, amen. This has been the TTL, Tani Talks Live. Join us next time, where we talk a topic per session, with some practical lessons, and I'm your host, Tani.